Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have been through a study uh, starting from chapter 1, and uh, it's been rightfully named Church Gone Wild, right, or Church Gone Wrong, because we have heard a lot of crazy things, a lot of wild things, and a lot of uh, things that you would expect to hear um, from a place like Las Vegas or some sort of secular place, but now um, as Paul is addressing these problems at the church at Corinth, uh, and we said this from the beginning, it's okay for the church to be in Corinth, but it wasn't okay for Corinth to be in the church, right? Um, same analogy of uh, saying that, you know, it's okay to have water outside of the boat. Problem is when water comes inside of the boat. And so Paul has identified through uh, several things and people who have talked to Paul uh, issues there at the church at Corinth. And uh, we've studied uh, several of these, um, beginning with the, the silly, um, you know, back and forth over who was the better preacher, Paul who's planted the church and left, or Apollos, or uh, another pastor that comes along. They were, uh, you know, just griping back and forth over little things and questioning Paul's apostleship. And uh, I said it several times, I'll say it again, if you don't like the message, you attack the messenger, right? So they were attacking Paul, Paul not able to defend himself because he was not there presently. And so uh, he had to do this through a series of letters. We do have two recorded in Scripture that made it into the canon of Scriptures. There was at least one more letter that was not uh, in the canon of Scriptures for us. So we know he had at least uh, two or at least three letters, two of which we're, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians um, that Paul um, wrote to the church at Corinth. And so as he's addressing these issues, um, we, we get some of the backstory of it. Um, we've worked our way through last week talking about the um, gray areas, as they were called some of these things, or areas to where you look and study through the Bible, and they might have called into question some of Paul's teaching, some of the scriptures. Do you eat meat? Do you not eat meat? Do you eat it to idols? Um, if it's been offered to idols, or do you? Um, all these things that um, through 7, 8, and 9 we talked about. And we talked about the ruling principle in chapter 9 that Paul said he had become all things to all people that he might win some. That meaning that um, he did not compromise his convictions, but yet he did not take his liberty in Christ to cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble or cause someone who was watching him to lose his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One thing I didn't say last week that I wish I would have uh, said was, you know, Paul's main thing was to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And in our life, we're going to learn, or we should learn, that is the main thing for our life as well, right? Um, and we talked a little bit about going through the holidays, and you get to talk to more family members, you get to talk to your neighbors and friends, instead of chasing the rabbits or going down the roads of silly arguments about uh, certain things in our culture or in political things or anything like that, which is fine to have discussion about those things. But before you get too deep and uh, rooted in uh, drawing lines and enemies, make sure we focus on the gospel, right? Our main goal is to share Jesus with them. And once someone 
someone has Jesus in their life, he changes them. He changes them into something that they don't even know they can be changed into. And, uh, and we all can testify of those in our lives and even some of us in our own lives of the drastic, radical change that Jesus can make in someone's life. He can take someone that is um, bitter and hateful and angry and turn them into someone who is sweet and loving and kind, right? Uh, that doesn't happen uh, any, any other way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul said, I've learned. I'm not going to argue back and forth with someone. I'm not going to uh, say I'm going to eat meat. I'm not going to cause someone to stumble. I'm not going to cause someone to not hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep the main thing the main thing. And we talked about how important that was to do as a church as well, right? Um, there's a lot of soapboxes that I could preach about. And I've said this many times before. I do have a lot of opinions. If you want to hear my opinions, you can come talk to me after church or at home. But when I'm preaching, I try the best I can to stick to the Word of God. And that's what I love about preaching verse by verse in the Bible. Is a lot of times I don't get to pick the topics. I don't get to pick the topics that I like and the topics that I don't like. Um, when you preach verse by verse through the Bible, you get to cover them all. And you get to, you get to hear the Word of God. And I try to stick as much as I can. To, as possible to the Word of God and not try to insert opinions or um, you know, personal likes or dislikes. And so uh, as we stick to the Word of God, as we stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when people leave here, they shouldn't say how great the church is or how great the pastor is or how great all those things are secondary to how great Jesus is, right? How we have fellowship with one another because we've been born again through the gospel or by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. That's the thing we want people to know about our life, about our church, about our family. So chapter 10 opens up, Paul Continues a little ways uh, talking about, um, you know, arguing or talking about um, these, uh, these, these sinful or sensual desires among the church, among those who are in the church. Um, and he continues to give us uh, a roadmap to uh, being free in Christ, but not so free that we violate our liberty uh, or we violate the standard that God has for his children, especially for those who are weaker brothers or sisters in Christ. So um, he turns now um, and he's going to bring the Old Testament into the picture. And Paul in chapter 10 uh, writes this chapter uh, through obviously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and uh, very, very interesting things that Paul has to say in chapter 10. So let's dive in in chapter uh, in verse 1, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Paul uh, says, moreover, brethren, so when we're reading the Bible, it's always important to set in context, right? So when he says brethren, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers, right? So we have scriptures that apply to non-believers, but this particular passages are, he is addressing to believers, my brethren, those who have called themselves Christians or who are Christians. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that our, that all are, I, I do not want you to be unaware um, in the Greek word, it's a little more stronger than that. It literally is the word we get ignorant from. So I don't want you to be an ignoramus. I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact, brothers, uh, that all of our fathers uh, were under the cloud. 
all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and, all, and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Wow. Now, this is interesting because Paul is going to call witnesses or a witness from the Old Testament. And he says, I want you to hear something about our fathers, those who were who preceded us in the faith in God. And through that, uh, obviously, to the Jewish people, the Exodus was one of the major events in the history of the Jewish people. And through that Exodus, we know that Moses led them through that. He was the great deliverer. And so they, he, he, he now appeals to them as the deliverer that had cr- the, the people had cried out to God. God sent Moses. Moses was the deliverer that brought them out. And through that process, as we know the story, uh, they were under the cloud. What cloud was he talking about? You remember in the wilderness, there was a cloud that was uh, shade during the day, right? And then at night, it was a pillar of fire to give them um, light as well. So he's saying they were all under this providential hand of God that provided for them. They all passed through the sea. Uh, talking about passing through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses and the cloud. And in all the sea, they all ate the spiritual food. Um, remember, the spiritual food was manna, basically. Um, they said it was sweet to the taste, and they would eat it, and they called it manna because manna literally means, what is it? I always say it's like a Krispy Kreme donut, right? They would eat it, it disappeared, and they say, what was that? That was really good, right? It was sweet to the taste. So uh, they had manna, and every morning they would get up, fresh manna all over the ground. How about getting up every morning, fresh Krispy Kreme donuts everywhere, right? Uh, The hot sign was on every morning for the nation of Israel, right? So he says, here you are. Did not all eat from that? Did God not all pro- did God not provide for all all of the believers or all of the brethren or all of our fathers? We ate of the same stuff. Then he switches. He switches from a, a physical sense to a spiritual sense. And if we know through the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament has a lot of pictures in it. It has a lot of meanings that um, on the surface look like just physical things, but they're much deeper than that. They are spiritual things. So he says physically through these things, but verse 3, he switches and says, all ate of the same spiritual food. So was it not God that had met with him in the tabernacle? Had not, was it not God that would meet with Moses? Was it not God that would feed them through the word of God, through the law of God? Of course it was. And did they not all drink of the same spiritual drink? Did they not have all the same opportunity to go and be of the same spiritual drink? Were they not all a nation or all believers under the name of God through the exodus of Moses? And then, for they drank of the same spiritual rock that followed them. And some people know the story of Moses when he had the rock. He struck the rock and it, it brought water. And uh, he struck the rock twice out of anger. God says, because you struck the rock twice, that you would not see the promised land. That's how Moses did not make it to the promised land. But here, physically, talking about the rock. But yet, now Paul switches that and says, not the rock, physical rock, but... The rock was who? Was Christ. 
Isn't it amazing? The more you read the Bible, the more you realize that even through from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation uh, to the end of Revelation, it's all about one person, Jesus, right? If we get to the end of the Bible and we miss the hero of the story, then we've missed it all, right? In the Old Testament, Christ was concealed. In the New Testament, he's revealed. And Paul, if you read some of his later uh, letters as well, talks about the mystery of Christ and the mystery of this. And talking about the Old Testament, we realize that Christ is the key to the Old Testament. It's like taking the blinders off to really see what God's, uh, what God's plan was from the very start. And a lot of people come to Christ and say, well, Jesus Christ dying on the cross and him uh, being resurrected and him uh, returning back to heaven, that was plan B. Plan A was the nation of Israel. <laughs> no. God, Jesus Christ doesn't take plan B from anyone. He's not plan B. He was plan A, right? So from Genesis 1-1, the plan was Jesus Christ. He was plan A. He's not plan B. So he was saying, is not all this that you see and all these people that you see were not under themselves or not of what they could do. They were under the rock who was Christ. In the Old Testament, we have several pictures of that. Um, you can see uh, in the Old Testament, they call them theophanies, or they also call them Christophanies, either one. Um, one is theophany, the appearances of God concealed in the Old Testament. Christophany is a concealment of Christ in the, in the Old Testament. Um, we can see that um, through one obvious example. You remember the story of Melchizedek? Uh, when he met Abraham, and Abraham fell before Melchizedek and realized that he was a prophet and a king, but of a prophet and a king of a country that he knew nothing about. That was Christ. That was a pre-incarnate picture of Christ before Abraham. So even all the way back through the whole thing, the rock was Christ. So uh, Paul is reasoning with them, telling him, here's all these, here's all these things. Here's all these people. Did they not have all the same access? Were they not all part of the same nation of Israel? Were they not all delivered? Were they not all being led by Christ? In verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So Paul switches the story. He says, here's all these people, and you think they were all doing great, but we know the rest of the story, right? The rest of the story was they had access to all these things, but God was not well pleased with them. And if you read the story of the wilderness, do you know how many of them made it out of the wilderness to go into the promised land? The whole generation died, right? I mean, the whole generation had passed away, and that's why Paul was saying, was not their bodies scattered in the wilderness like they never made it to the promised land because God was not well pleased with them so verse 6 comes and Paul says now these things became our examples and that's great because when we think about our Bible there is a push through a lot of theologians right now to unhinge the Old Testament from the New Testament, right? The Old Testament is out of date. It's old-fashioned. It, God doesn't operate that way anymore. God has somehow learned from his mistakes and grown from his mistakes. And now in the New Testament, he is full of love and care and compassion. And he doesn't He's not holy like he was, and he wasn't, he's not judgmental like he was in the Old Testament. He's all new, right? Well, Paul says, even here, these things became our examples. These things came something we could learn about God with. Does everything in the Old Testament uh, specifically apply to us today? Not everything, 
but the principles of God, the principles of God's people, and the principles of what they were going through does. And he's drawing a conclusion here. Can you be a part of the church at Corinth and be saved and be outside of the will of God and still get judged by God for you being outside of the will of God? What is Paul saying? Paul said, if you look to our example, we're not all them part of the nation of Israel, but God was still not well pleased with them. And if he wasn't well pleased with them, guess what? He's not well pleased with you either because of the way that you're acting, because of the way that you're living. And he says, here's our example uh, to the intent that we should not lust after evil as things that they lusted after. So Paul says, here's our examples. Here's what we can draw from these conclusions. He gives us four things that was from the Old Testament that Paul's going to relate to them right here at the church of Corinth. And we can relate to those even to our life today. So question being, can I be a Christian and my liberty in Christ do these things and God will just have to put up with it? God will still bless me. God will still give me the best of what he has for me. Paul would say, no, here's our examples. Here's four things that cost a lot of those who were part of the nation of Israel that God was not well pleased with. They didn't get the best from God. They didn't get uh, the will of God in their life and see the promised land. They never made it to uh, what we would consider a joyful, overcoming Christian life. How to put it that way. When we read the Old Testament, the promised land was not heaven. The promised land was a victorious life in God. You trust and your faith is in God. God rewarded your faith and you were living a life that was full of abundance and blessings. So in the New Testament, us as a victorious Christian life and a joyful life is the same picture. So what kept them from living in the promised land, Paul is saying, is the same thing that's keeping you from living a victorious Christian life today. And what, what, what are those things? Well, he begins with uh, number one, verse seven. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, uh, number one, idolatry is defined as putting anything ahead of God in your life. Idolatry is putting anything or anyone in front of God in your life, including yourself, right? Now, uh, we, we have the tendency as a, uh, just a human being, it's in our nature to be an idolater, it's in our flesh to be an idolater. It's in our flesh to want to obey ourselves, to plan our own way, to, to, to chart our own course. And then also not just even in ourselves, but outside of ourselves, we like to attach ourselves to things that we uh, come into contact with that we begin to put before God, before our devotion, before our commitment. Before our um, relationship with the Lord, we put these things in there. And, and idolatry comes when we put something before God. Paul says, if, if you want to learn from them, here's a great example. Number one, do not become an idolater. So for us as Christians, it's very important for us to realize that if we have an idol in our life, is God going to bless us? Is God going to be happy with us? Is God going to give us our, our, his best? No, he's not. And when we have something before God and, it's a, and we have an idol in our life, let me tell you what God's going to do. 
God is going to discipline us until we get rid of that idol in our life. And how many times have we really thought about this in our life that, that we've prayed for something or even we might even prayed for something good in our life? Um, I know some people has prayed for a job and they get a job and four or five years down the road, guess what comes in between them and God? Their job. The very thing that God blessed them with all of a sudden is now an idol in their life to where they don't serve God anymore. They don't have a commitment to the Lord, but they have a commitment to their job. They have a commitment to their career. And listen, it might be a good thing. It might just be a person in her life. It might just be something that we have. But what happens is we drift towards idolatry. And when we begin to put a rank in our heart of something ahead of God, that's where trouble happens. That's where God's going to discipline us. That's where God's not going to allow that. He's not going to allow uh, something in your heart or in your life over God. It's not going to happen. You read through the Bible, the Old Testament, it says God is a jealous God. Now, I know Oprah had a problem with that, okay? But she's Oprah, and she can have a problem with that. God doesn't have a problem with that. God, uh, and when we talk about a jealous God, it's not a sinful jealousy like we talk about with us having jealousy in our heart towards someone else. It's a pure jealous that God is talking about, meaning that we are his children, we are his people, and he doesn't want anything between us and him, period. And whatever else we get in our life that comes in between us and God, he's going to go to work in that and pull that out of our life. He's going to get it out of our life. He's going to, he's going to break us down from getting an idol in our life. So Paul says, you want to talk about being close to the Lord? Look to idolatry. Do you have any idols in your life? Number two, in verse eight, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in just one day, 23,000 fell, nor let uh, 23,000 fell. So one, idolatry, two, sexual immorality. He says in your life, if you are sexually, if you have sexual immorality, you cannot expect God to bless you. You cannot expect God to give you his best. You cannot expect the blessings of the Lord and have an overcoming, joyful, peaceful Christian life when you have sexual immorality in your life. It's not going to happen. It didn't happen for them. He gives an example of the story where um, they had, uh, uh, had went and most of or some of the nation of Israel had begun to go to Moab and to be able to get hooked into the, the Moabites and through the prostitution of that. And they were um, having relationships outside of the family of God and outside of Israel. And God struck them, 23,000 of them dead. And then later on, 24,000 of them died just through diseases that come through that sexual immorality. God doesn't mess around with sexual immorality. He doesn't want his people in sexual immorality. He doesn't want any part of that. And when we have that in our life, especially when he was talking about the, the people here at the church at Corinth, we already read the story of one guy who was uh, sleeping or having an affair with his stepmother, right? So obviously Paul was saying, listen, you can't be doing those kind of things and expecting God to bless you. It's not going to happen. So you may be a child of God, but you're not having God's best and you're not fulfilling the law of Christ because you have idolatry and secondly, you have sexual immorality. Now I know that doesn't go well in our culture today. 
We don't like to hear a lot about sexual immorality because we have a culture that's full of sexual immorality. But as you see in our culture today, it's being pushed on kids younger and younger and younger. And that's why we have kids that's getting in more and more trouble because when you are in sexual immorality, God does not lead. He does not guide like he could or like he should in your life. And because of that, we drift further and further away from God rather than having God's best for our life. So idolatry. Uh, sexual immorality is number two. Uh, then he says in verse nine, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And we know that story, right? Uh, when were they destroyed by serpents? Remember when Moses had held up the stick and he had the golden serpents and he said, look at the serpent and you shall live. And some of them said, we're not looking at that serpent. We don't want anything to do with that serpent. And they began to, uh, they, they began to tempt the Lord God. And what did God do? He struck them dead. Like they died because they were disobedient to uh, what they were supposed to be doing. So they tempted God. God, you will not do this. We are not afraid of your judgment. And I will say, for Western Christianity, and especially the longer that we tarry as a denomination or as a Christian culture or nation, as we say we believe in God, that one thing that is radically in a free fall is the fear of the Lord. You don't hear pastors or preachers or leaders talking about the fear of God anymore. You don't hear them talking about the judgment of the Lord. You don't hear about them saying, don't mess with God. Don't mess with God's people. He is holy. He is righteous. And he will judge because we, we keep putting it off. And even I can't help but even think about the second coming of Christ. How many people do you hear say, oh, it's been over 2,000 years. That's a fairy tale. That's a story that's never going to happen. But, and, and more and more scoffers and more and more of those who do, are not serious with God and, and even more and more of those who say they are Christians or who are Christians that are in sexual immorality or idolatry, they're saying, God won't do nothing to me. I've even heard people uh, on the internet who has gives testimony of them uh, specifically saying, if there is a God, I challenge him to strike me dead right now. Then they say, see, that proves there's no God. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be in that position. Maybe that's what the lightning was for earlier, right? To remind us how serious God is, right? And how serious God can be. But they tempted Christ. They tempted the Lord. They tempted him. Said, you won't do anything about it. We won't be judged. God is love, love, love. And he won't do what he says he's going to do. I can promise you, God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Uh, God, the justice of God and the, the righteousness of the Lord and justice, it grinds slowly, but it grinds surely. God will bring to pass his judgments. He will bring to pass his holiness. And whether we are Christians or whether we're not Christians, if we believe in the judgment of God, if we don't believe in the judgment of God, it's going to happen. And, and Paul is saying, don't have idolatry don't commit sexual immorality. Don't take God lightly and think that his judgments will never happen. Learn from the serpents. And then the fourth thing, nor complain. Oh boy, I better repent for that one. Anyways, nor, <laughs> nor complain, right? Think about this. The, word, the root word is grumbler. Uh, another word used to describe this is uh, backbiting grumbling, complaining, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
So he's saying that here are those who are backbiting, grumbling, always complaining to God. And you remember the manna was not good enough. The bread, you know, uh, the provision of God was not good enough. The, this, all this stuff was never good enough. And they were always complaining, always griping, never thankful, never doing these things. And he says, this is a characteristic in my life. that I'm not going to put up with someone that's always grumbling, griping, and complaining and never thankful. It almost sounds like a good parent, does it not? I mean, who likes a griping, whining, grumbling kid, right? No one does. And so uh, Paul was saying, listen, here was four things I'm going to identify that's happening then, that's happening now. And I'm going to tell you uh, what he says in verse 11. He sums this up. He says, now all these things happen to them as examples. Pastor Lindsay used to say, life's too short to make all the dumb mistakes yourself. Learn from other people, Right? This is what Paul's saying. Listen, all these things we have recorded in our Bible for examples, that, that this is something we can learn from. And, and we can learn from these things, and God has used them as examples in our life. And if they didn't get away with it, you're not going to get away with it either. And so you have idolatry, you have sexual immorality, you're griping and grumbling and tempting God. It's not going to happen. You, you think that you are going to get away with this, but it's not going to happen. These are examples that I'm giving you specifically, and you need to use them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, meaning that we should read these stories and it should admonish us. It should, it should wake us up. It should stir us up. Hey, let me hear the story about this. Don't do this. This admonishes us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he's just mentioning to those things, however long God tarries, these are an admonition to us to really look and, to, and determine in our life. If, if they couldn't get away with it and God punished it, he's going to punish it now, even in Christ. And so uh, the conclusion of what he says in this, this section right here, uh, verse 12, he gets to the root of the issue. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And if you remember, when we first started out, Paul identified spiritual pride, right? He said that you guys think that you are so spiritual. You guys think that you have arrived, that you are so holy and so righteous and have so much liberty in God that you're so far outside of the judgment of the Lord that he would never do this, he would never do that, and everything you do is right and everything you do is great. And he said, Paul says, a stern warning let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And it's important for us to judge ourselves. It's important for us to evaluate our lives. And when you get to the book of Revelation, it's no secret. I mean, you look at uh, every, almost every church age but one or every church example of Christian types of believers that we can apply to our life. Um, if you remember at the church of Ephesus, they had a lot of great things, but they left their first love. Remember that? Self-evaluation, they had left their first love. Uh, you look at uh, the church at Laodicea. They had wealth, they had goods, they had uh, plenty of material possessions, but Jesus said they were lukewarm. They were, they were lukewarm. They had a self-evaluation of being rich in the Lord, but yet in reality, they were lukewarm. They were, they were not rich in the Lord. They were miserable, naked, poor, and blind. Paul is telling even the church here at Corinth, wake up. You're not all that spiritual. You, 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 you think you have these things. You think you've arrived, but take heed lest you fall. That pride goeth before a fall. Then, uh, I know many of you have heard this verse before. 
A great verse, great promise, by the way, if you want to mark it down in your Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Man, what a promise we have in God, right? So what he's saying here is, you think you're great, take heed lest you fall. But listen, there's no temptation that's overtaking you such as common to man. They were complaining, they were whining, they were griping. It's too hard. I can't help myself. It's something that is just a part of the culture. It's part of reality. It just happens that way. I can't help myself. It's kind of like the old, uh, the old TV show with Flip Wilson. I always said, the devil made me do it. You know what I mean? You always blame the devil. They were saying, I can't help it. I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. Paul says, that's, that's baloney. He, he says, here, what you have, there's nothing that overtakes you, which is common to man. Meaning that it's a common temptation. It's something that is normal. It's something that, it, 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 that is not so out of the norm or super spiritual or something that's so overbearing. It's just common to man. But God is faithful. That's where the victory is. That's where the promise is that we can't do it. But in God, He is faithful that will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with the temptation, he makes a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So what excuse can we give God for falling into sin and moving away from the Lord? (laughs) Paul says, you're giving me excuses, 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 right? And anybody who's been a parent of a teenager knows what excuses, excuses, excuses are, right? I love what someone says, everyone has an excuse. Uh, They're like an armpit, you know. Some people have two, but they always stink, right? They always stink. Excuses always stink. No matter what what kind of excuse you could come up with, it stinks. Paul's saying, you got this excuse that your dad did this or that your mom did that. Isn't it embarrassing sometimes to hear people's story and they're 25, 30, 40 years old and they're still blaming their mom and their dad? My dad made me do this. It's like how old are you? <laughs> you know, or my mom always did this. And we're blaming all these other people. We're blaming our culture. We're blaming this. We're blaming... Paul's saying, you don't get an excuse. It, everything you have is faithful. It is it, common to man. The point is, God was faithful then. God is faithful now. If you remember the story, do you remember the two that came out of the wandering in the wilderness that went into the promised land? Do you remember the two? The two spies that ended up going and take, going into the promised land? you remember their names? Joshua and Caleb, that's right. And Joshua and Caleb came back, Caleb came back with a totally different review and they had a different spin on it. They, they made it. They were examples of trusting in God regardless of what they saw and regardless of the Jordan River. Joshua and Caleb came, Caleb came back and said, we can do it. God is faithful. And everyone else said, no, he's not. The river's too wide. We've been in this place forever. We can't do it. God can't do it. That's the way we get sometimes. I can't help myself. I, 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 I fall into sexual temptation, or I, I'm always going to be this way. I always have idolatry because of the culture that I'm in, of the family that I grew up in. I can't stop uh, this, and I can't stop that. No, Paul is saying you can stop it. God is faithful, and, he, and when you have a temptation, he says you have a way of escape. Now, for us, the reason why we can't find a way of escape most of the time is because the same reason why uh, a thief can't find a cop, right? We don't want to find it. 
But in every temptation we have, Paul was saying that we have a way of escape. God is faithful to provide it. And as he does that, we are able to bear it. We are able to overcome it. We have no excuse. We have no excuse to do it. So I got to move on. You guys aren't listening fast enough. First, uh, let's finish through first. I wanted to get through chapter 10 because I want to get to the end of this. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word flee means to get away from it. Have nothing to do with it. And he's going to go through it, and you go back and read all these things um, over these things here. And he's saying, you know, as all these things, part of the things is not Israel after the flesh. Are you not one who eats of the? He's saying all these body of Christ that comes together. Are we not all of one people? And when one person in the body of Christ stumbles and falls, does it not hurt the whole body? Of course it does. Have you ever stubbed your big toe? You stub your big toe, but let me tell you, it affects the rest of your body, right? You're, 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 you, you feel it in all your places because one part of your body has stubbed its toe. And what they were saying was, this doesn't bother anyone else. I can eat I, I meet the idols. I can have my sexual immorality. I can, ha- I can do this. And it doesn't bother anyone. It doesn't cause anyone to know. Paul is saying, no, that's not an excuse. You need to flee from it. Have nothing to do with it because if you think you can overcome it, it won't. It costs you. It costs those in the body of Christ. A lot of times it costs that in our family. One of my uh, favorite stories in the Old Testament about the consequences of sin is Lot. You remember Lot came out of Sodom, but Sodom, but who didn't come out of Sodom? His family paid the price. Lot made it, but look at the price that it paid, that he paid, and then his testimony that he lost. That's what Paul was reasoning here. You, you think you have this liberty in God, but look at the price you're paying. You're, you're paying the price in your life, and you're also, the, the church as a whole, other believers are paying the price as well. Uh, verse 23, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Here's another ring to put in the ladder for us, so to speak, when we come to gray areas that we think are in the Bible. If we do something that causes a weak brother or sister in Christ to fall away from the Lord, what is Paul saying? Don't seek it after yourself. Don't take your liberty and cause someone else to stumble. And he says, whatever, in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. He goes through the whole thing. You can read this at home or later on when you talk about it. I want to get down to verse 31. Uh, another hinge verse in the book of, or the letter of Corinthians. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Wow. Man, isn't that a great test for us? That when we participate in something, literally, can we sign God's name to that? When we treat people a certain way and we walk away from them, could we say God would be proud of that, that glorified God? When when we uh, engage in activities or uh, something in our life that we're watching or or a show on TV or something we, we, we see for entertainment, does that bring honor to Jesus Christ, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever it is? Are we doing it for the glory of God? That's what Paul says. I love Paul's bottom line statements, don't you? Miss Carol used one last week when she was teaching me about what I was teaching, right? She said, I have been 
crucified with Christ. And it's not I who lives any longer. I mean, what a great bottom line. Paul is saying, when you're talking about this liberty that you can have, when you're talking about the sin that you can engage in, when you're talking about all this stuff that you can get away with with God, let me ask you one question. Does it glorify God? Because if it doesn't glorify God, you shouldn't be doing it. Everything in your life should bring glory to God in His church, in your family, in your personal life. And if it doesn't, then you should have nothing to do with it. Flee from it. Get away from it. Have nothing to do with it. What a great bottom line for our lives. So let's, let's pray together, then we'll talk about it. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we do come before you, Lord. We thank you for these scriptures, Lord. We thank you for the challenge. We thank you for the promise that we have, Lord. We don't have to have idolatry. We don't have to go the way of sexual immorality. We don't have to fall into these sins in our life. But yet, we have a God who is faithful, a God who gives us a way out, a God who gives us the ability to bear up underneath it, to not fall victim to anything that our flesh or our desires has us to do, but yet we can overcome it through Christ. What a promise. And Lord, I pray as we evaluate our lives, Lord, any idolatry, any immorality, anything that draws us away, or anything that draws brothers or sisters in Christ that are watching us away from the Lord, and whatever it may be, that we would take that and we would get it out of our lives and we would put you first in our life and that everything we do, whether we say, whether we eat or drink or say or what we do, will glorify the name of God. And what a what a great, great goal. What a great, great foundation for us to look to our Christian liberty and say, does this glorify God? Does this edify other believers in Christ or will this cause them to stumble? And we must do that. That must be our litmus test, as Paul said here uh, so greatly in the book, uh, I mean, this letter of Corinthians, Lord. I pray, God, that will be our heart. That'll be our heart as a church. That'll be our heart as, as we live with our family and our neighbors and our friends, that when they look to our life, they always look and say, that person glorifies God in what they say and what they do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, I know some of you got comments about this one, all right? So uh, we, it, it's a great chapter, a great thing. Isn't it neat how when you first start off a, a study, it, 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 every week it comes, it just builds and builds and builds. Isn't that neat? I, I, I find that so true in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to be preaching through Deuteronomy after the first of the year. And starting out, it's kind of, you know, rough. And you're thinking, man, how is this going to fit in? And how is this going to do this? And then all of a sudden you get in and you're like, this is really, really, really good, you know? And when you start off in the book of Corinthians here, once you get the cultural context of what Paul is saying, you say, wow, that's why that verse says that. That's why that means that. That's why that really challenges our life. And so I hope each and every week as you go chapter by chapter, as we learn what Paul is talking about, that it begins to build in your heart to give us some perspective and really give us the truth of, of what we can, uh, how we can please the Lord um, in our life, the way that we, we live and we talk and we, we, we uh, do these things. So